Well, good morning, church. God bless you all and uh, happy December to you. We are excited to be with you today. I want you to take your Bibles. Join me in Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 3 to start in verse 12, and we're going to go as far as verse 1 of chapter 4, but we're in a short four-week series called In God's Eyes, where we've been looking at some concepts, some words, some ideas that often uh, we think of them according to our own definition, but what we really need to do is we need to open God's Word. We need to see what God's definition of these concepts are. We've looked at uh, the idea of freedom from God's perspective. We've looked at success last week. Today, we're going to look at a different concept, and uh, we're going to look at Philippians, and Paul gives us God's perspective on ambition, ambition. Uh, many today are ambitious, but what they are ambitious for and the manner in which they are ambitious is not necessarily in keeping with God's definition. Uh, I, I went to a, a scrimmage game, a basketball game the other night for our wonderful school, Grace Christian Academy. My son plays on the middle school team there, and we went up against, it was just a scrimmage against a local school. What we did not know about this school was that they are geared toward preparing their students for college athletics, and we didn't know that. <laughs> and so it was a bit of a mismatch. It was nobody's fault. Uh, I think it was a good thing, good experience for our boys, but it was rather humbling to watch that score kind of ratchet up and we had not scored a basket. And I'm like, well, we can come back, we can come back. And then I thought, we're not coming back. We're not, you know, and we're, they're well into the double, double digits, you know, and finally it's the end of the game. We haven't scored yet and they're just burying us, you know. And I mean, on that court, it was our short little guys with like minute bowl out there. You know, but at the very end of the game, as the seconds are ticking down on that clock, the ball squirts loose at the other end of the court. It rolls all the way down. We have this little guy named Jackson. Jackson runs down to the other end of the court. He scoops up that ball, and he's got this hulking player over him, and he just throws up this shot, and we, all the parents are over here, and we're going. I mean, we're watching it slow-mo, right? And it went in, and we just go, yeah! And we just explode. It's like we won the game, man. We're high-fiving each other and hugging and crying. And that was our one basket. But it was, it was a victory. But, you know, I was so proud of our boys because they were clearly outgunned. They were outmatched. They never, ever, ever quit. They fought. They just hustled everything. You know, they just, you know. And I just had to say, that's ambition out there on that court. They're not giving up. They know what their goal is. And no matter what point in the game it is, they're going for the goal. Well, in Philippians chapter 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul spent an, uh, an amount of time talking about this process called sanctification. And that's the process where God is shaping us, molding us, crafting us into the image of Jesus. And by the time we get to chapter 3, Paul is... He's getting specific. He's saying this is how you do it. And he gives a classic presentation on the holiness of God and our pursuit of that holiness. And he uses language of an athletic event whereby you compete to win a prize. And when one competes, there is a level of ambition. 
we've seen it in college football this time of year. Uh, there are upsets, and you see lesser teams overpowering a clearly, obviously uh, more talented team. And what is it that you hear at the end of the game when that lesser team won? You don't attribute it to talent. You don't attribute it to the refs, you know, cheating for you, although sometimes that happens. Uh, what do they say? They say they just wanted it more. They wanted it more. To want something that appears to be beyond you, that is a noble ambition, to be single-minded. And so we're going to look at this pursuit, this obsession that Paul has, that every believer needs to have, to want something that seems to be beyond us. I want you to bow with me right now. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just open this text to our hearts, to our minds today, God, that we may take it to heart, and that we may apply it in our lives, that we may desire to be more for you and by your power, because that's your design, that's your desire for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, how to stay biblically ambitious, not from a worldly perspective, but ambitious in God's eyes. Number one in your notes, I want you to understand, you got to know you have more to learn. Know you have more to learn. Here's how he begins in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect? Paul says, man, I know I got more to learn. I got room to grow. I'm not perfect. And the word for perfect is the Greek word telos. Telos, it means the end. It's a prefix. You see it on telescope and on television and on telephone. You got something on this end. You're going to take it all the way to this end. And Paul's saying, I'm over here on this end. I want to be on that end, but I'm not there yet. And that is an attitude that is essential to sanctification. When he is molding and crafting you, the Lord is making you to be like his son, Jesus Christ. It is important for you to understand that you are not Christ at the beginning. You got to know your limitations. You got to know your weaknesses. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that you don't know. There are areas uh, in your life that are not under the control of Christ as they should be. There are areas of morality that you're struggling in, temptations uh, that, that take you down from time to time. And so Paul says, I've got room for improvement here. And that's true of everybody. Listen, if that's true of Paul, that's true of you for sure, and true of me as well. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 9, David said, uh, or Solomon rather, who could say I've made my heart pure? Who could say I am clean from sin? We all have imperfection. And Paul says in spite of that imperfection, as he goes on, he says, I press on. I press on. And the word press in the Greek is the word dioko. Dioko. And interestingly, this is the same word used uh, that is translated as persecute, to follow hard after, to pursue. It's the word used of this very man, Paul, when he was known as Saul of Tarsus. Before he became Paul the apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of Christians. And he pursued, he dioko with these new believers of the early church to see them tortured, to see them killed even for their faith. And now that same word is used, but the object is different. It's not persecution, it's sanctification. And the word used there implies that sanctification is intense. It's an intense thing. It's a strenuous thing, sanctification. About every decade and a half in church culture, you, you have this philosophy that emerges that says, you know, you don't have to do anything. If you know Christ, it's all done. 
You know, just, just sit back, relax. You don't have to worry, fret about obedience. You don't have to, to try. You just let, God will make you what he wants to make you. And I get where they're going with that. You don't have to do anything for your salvation. We know that. And we do know that it's by the power of Christ and his spirit that you are transformed. But there is human will and effort involved in the process of sanctification. And what we don't want to do is foster a mindset of complacency because that's not biblical. The Bible speaks extensively, Christian, of examining yourself, of confessing your sin to God and one to another. And you got to long for the pure milk of the word. You got to stay in the word of God and pray over it and apply it in your life and put on the armor of God and not forsake the assembling of the saints, which, which is what you are engaging in right now in this setting. And all of these disciplines are vital and essential to our growth to our sanctification. I'm following hard after this. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, I want, and he goes on, to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I want to make it my own because he's made me. To take hold of that because Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. All right? I want this because he wants me. That's what he wants. And he says, this is me trying to be in practice what God will make me in Christ. He's the standard. He is my model. Not some author, not some singer, not some preacher, not some social media influencer. Jesus. And he says in verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do one thing I do, that means there's a focus. There's one thing. He is zeroing in on this. There's not 40 things that we make our single-minded focus. There's one thing. Paul is consumed with this, to obey Christ. To obey Christ. When people say WWJD, you hear people say that from time to time. What do a lot of us do when we hear somebody go, well, what would Jesus do, WWJD? A lot of us inwardly, we roll our eyes. Because we think of that, we equate it with a fad. We think of that bracelet we used to wear 25 years ago, WWJD, you know. Let me tell you something. To, to ask that question, what would Jesus do? That's not a fad. That is a timeless thing. Uh, we we kind of go all in on little kitschy things with bracelets and T-shirts and slogans. And, you know, because we know they're only hot for so long. And we jump on them for a while. And then when they fade, we kind of <laughs> remember when we used to say that. Listen, this is a timeless concept. We must always be asking this. What would Christ do? How does God see this? It needs to be our reflex, our obsession. And that's what Paul is obsessed with. One thing. It's the magnificent obsession of the Christian life. This is what David was talking about uh, in Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What do we call David? He was a man after God's own heart. You've heard David called that. Why is he called a man after God's own heart? It's not because God looked at David and said, you know, I like that boy. He's a man after my own heart. That's not, that's not what it means. It means David was after the heart of God. He was pursuing the heart of God. And that is what we need to be. We need to be after God's heart. We've got more to learn. And then number two in your notes, remember this to be biblically ambitious, you gotta resist resting on past accomplishments. 
Resist resting on past accomplishments. What does Paul say? He goes on to say, forgetting what lies behind. Forget what lies behind. Now, this verse has been uh, taken uh, by some well-intentioned teachers and Christians to say, you know, you need to just forget all your past failures. You know, leave that in the past. Leave that under the blood. It's, it's done. It's in the past. Leave it there. you got to move on ahead. Forget what lies behind. Leave your past failures behind. Now, listen, I'm all for that. I think that is very important that we do that. We need to remember that it's under the blood of Christ, and it does not rise to defeat us. It need not do that. That's not what Paul is saying in this verse. It's true, but that's not the context here. This is from the perspective of a faithful person who needs to forget the good works that he or she has done. You got to leave that stuff behind. You are a historically solid Christian, but you cannot rest on your past accomplishments. You can't rest on your laurels, okay? You can't survive on yesterday's manna. You remember in the Old Testament? Israel's wandering in the wilderness 40 years. Where did they get their food from? God supplied it every morning. They would wake up, come outside their tent. On the ground, there would be fresh manna, bread from heaven to to meet their hunger needs. All right? But notice, they were not to store it up. Whenever they would try to store it up, stockpile it for the next day, what would they discover? The next morning, that manna that they'd stored up was all rotten. It was filled with worms. They had to rely on fresh manna. You cannot rely on good things that you've done. You might think that you are all that in a bag of chips, you know. You know, I, 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 I've led a small group. I've taught a class. I've been an elder. I've done this. I've done that. God's not impressed with your past. You keep moving ahead. Don't you think Paul could coast? If anybody wanted to coast, don't you think Paul could Guy wrote most of the New Testament, wrote Romans, greatest book in the Bible. He's writing Philippians here. When he's done with Philippians, he's just got 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And then he's written most of the New Testament. He's founded churches at Galatia, in Asia Minor, in Greece, and Macedon. He's been stoned. He's been beaten with sticks. I mean, if anybody could rest on his past, it'd be Paul. And yet he says, forget that. Forget that. I got to press on. Whatever great things you're done, uh, you have done. It's in the past. Move ahead. He says, and straining forward to what lies ahead. You got an image here of a runner. What do runners do at the finish line? They strain forward, right? They stick out their, their head and their neck and their chest. Why? Because they just want to be done with the race. No, they want to beat the other guy. They want to win. This is about winning. I am reaching for that which I am not. I am straining ahead to what I am not. I'm not there yet, and I want to be there. Matthew Henry said, great souls are never content. They're always looking further. You can't rest on the past. Remember Polaroid? Remember those instant cameras we used to have a long time ago? You know, no longer, they were, they were a smash hit. They were a big success. Everybody went nuts for them. Uh, made Polaroid gobsmack some money. Because now you didn't have to take your film down to the place and pay and leave it there, you know, at the time for like a day or two days or whatever. Now you have this camera, instant photo. You take a picture, comes out the bottom right there. You wave it in the air and the picture materializes. And we thought they were so good. Now they're all grainy and they don't keep well and all that. But at the time, it was a huge success. But Polaroid was satisfied with that development. And they never really excelled beyond that. And now they're done. 
Oh, they're back in sort of an ironic, nostalgic kind of way. But Polaroid was never able to, to achieve greater success than they did in that moment. And you know what? You and I cannot rest on what is already done, what is in the past. Um, we got to be looking for ways to, to grow in our sanctification process. What are you doing? Who are you investing in? Have you identified people that you could share the gospel with, that you can walk alongside, that you can begin to disciple? Are you in the Word? Are you encouraging other people? All right? Are you challenging others? Paul says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He uses that word prize. So what this means in your notes, number three, you've got to identify the objective. Identify the objective. There's a goal here. What's the goal? Salvation? No. For the Christian, salvation is already settled. You've got it. That's not your goal, okay? You're secure. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have salvation. He lives in you, you see. The goal now is finishing your life, having become everything that God intends for you to become while you draw breath. That is your goal. There are things he wants you to do. There are things he wants you to learn. There are lives he wants you to invest in. That's part of your sanctification process. Uh, it's not your salvation that you're working toward. You're not working toward it. You're working it out. You're living it out, and you are going through this process called sanctification. This word prize, a prize is something you seek, okay? Christmas is around the corner. On Christmas morning, you will not find prizes under the tree. Prizes are things that you earn, okay? Uh, presents are free. Gifts are free. Salvation is free. This is a prize. It's something you compete for. There's a generation today that is the generation of the participation trophy, right? You know, your, your kid's in a sport and the, the participation trophy Everybody gets a trophy. You get a trophy, and you get a trophy, and you get a trophy. You did it. You showed up. Congratulations. You know, That wasn't my generation. When I was in the second grade, I was on a soccer team. We stunk, man. We didn't win a single game all year long. We went 0-1, 0-2, 0-3. Yet at the end of the season, you know what they gave us? Nothing! Because <laughs> we didn't deserve it. We didn't win, all right? And you know what? It was okay. We learned because when you lose, you learn. And we were better the next year, all right? I'm not into this. Let's just honor everybody's mediocrity. You know, because nobody displays a, a, a participation trophy. Nobody comes in your office and sees it sitting there and go, hey, neat trophy, where'd you get that? What'd you do to get that? Nothing. I just showed up and they gave it to me, you know? No, no, you display something you worked hard for and you obtained it, you won it. Elsewhere, Paul says, I run in such a way that I may win, all right? He's not saying, uh, you know, he says, I'm not just beating the air. I'm not just shadow boxing. This isn't for giggles over here. There's a prize to be won. I put everything I have into getting that prize. And so the Christian life is not about earning salvation, 
That's a free gift. Christ died on the cross for you. You just received that. But now there's a new objective. You're pursuing something with a vengeance. If you know Jesus, you'll go to heaven. But you know what awaits in heaven? There's a judgment one day. And you're going to stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And that is the place where rewards will be given. Rewards will be given for what you've done in this life. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Not just some participation trophy. This is something you'll win. And, and it's what makes it important, what makes it matter is because it comes from the one who matters. And you hear his voice and he says, well done well done. You see that movie Rocky? Rocky Balboa, he's from the streets. He comes from nothing. He trains hard. You know, he, he disciplines his body. He runs up those steps in Philadelphia. And you, hear, you can hear hearing the theme song now. You know, and finally he goes all the way and he's in that title match against Apollo Creed. The champ takes him 15 rounds. Ding, ding, ding. Match is over. Okay, you got, they're trying to decide who won the match. They're tallying everything up. In the meantime, you got to crush reporters around Rocky. And they're like, Rock, you took the champ 15 rounds. What do you think about that? What do you think about a rematch? Rock, what do you think? He doesn't care about what they're saying to him. He doesn't care about the crowd fawning over him. He's looking. He's looking for one face. And he's screaming her name. What's her name? Adrian! That's <laughs> all he cares about. It's the one he loves. Folks, there's one name. There's one face that we want to see. Only one who matters. And we want to hear him say, well done. Good, faithful servant. All right. And then number four in your notes, you've got to remember who you are. Remember who you are. Paul says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature. Uh, and what he uses here is that word telos. He uses it again. Just as in the first verse that we looked at. And it's for the word mature. And it means the end. But he's using this not in an absolute sense. It's in a relative sense. Maturity. Is there varying, are there varying degrees of maturity? Absolutely. You can be mature. Somebody can be more mature than you. And that's how it is with discipleship. There are growing disciples and there are more mature disciples. And Paul says if you're mature, he says think this way. Think this way. Have this in mind. If you're living in the past, you're not mature. You're not mature. You don't have the mindset that you need to have. You need to be thinking, what's next? Who are you identifying that you can share Christ with? Who are you identifying that you can disciple? If you're not zealous, you're not focused because this is a, a weekly activity. It's not just uh, something that you do from time to time. It's not just you walking in here on Sunday morning and you're saying, all right, check that box, did my deal. No, God wants you to, to, to be uh, laser-like focused on this every single day. And he says, if you're mature, think this way. He goes on, and if in anything you think otherwise. And so here there is an allowance that he gives because do all of us have a laser focus all the time? Some of you are like, oh yes, absolutely. Immature. <laughs> no, we gotta know we've got weaknesses. Let's be honest about it, right? Absolutely. And so there's an allowance here. We're not perfect. Paul's not perfect, we're not perfect. There are times when our focus slips. So when you do slip into a mindset of, you know, I got all these past accolades and accomplishments, Paul says, God will reveal that also to you. 
And so there's a ministry that God has in the life of the believer. We've spoken about this before. This, this process is not this deistic thing where you live in a vacuum and God saves you and spins you and steps back. No, he is active. He is engaged with you. His spirit lives in you, seals you, baptizes you, empowers you, gifts you, and he does something else. And it's a shift from what it once was. When you were lost, that spirit, you know what his ministry to you was as a lost person? To convict you of your sin so that you would come by faith and repentance. Now that spirit lives in you. You say, well, doesn't he still convict me of my sin? No, he convicts you of your righteousness. He reminds you of your identity. Your enemy's job is to tell you how sinful and awful you are. Now, do you ever sin? Yes, you do. But the Spirit's job is to remind you of your true identity, to say, come this way. Come this way. Be who I have declared you to be. And so God wants you to know he is committed to getting you back on track, to reminding you of who you are in Christ. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer, to convict you of your righteousness. And so we see in verse 16, he says, only... Let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, this feels a little contradictory to what he said in the beginning. What did he say in the beginning? Not that I have obtained. Remember that? Not that I have obtained. Now he says, now let us hold true to what we have attained. And it's a little cryptic here. The literal reading is, however, let us walk according to that to which we have arrived. Let us walk according to that to which we have arrived. That's the straight translation from the Greek. Some versions say, let us keep living by the same standard. That's okay, not bad, pretty good, but that's an interpretation. The, the more literal translation is, let us walk. Now, there's a word for walk, parapateo. That's like, you know, I'm walking. I'm walking here, parapateo, all right? That's not the word that he's using. He's using stoikos. Stoikos. You know what that is? That is to walk in a straight line. Keep it straight. Keep it uniform. Like a what? Like a soldier. What do soldiers do? They march. They march. Now, how do they do that? When, when you see troops marching, are they just, yeah? No. What are they doing? Very structured. Very uniform. They don't just walk to whatever cadence they want. There is a uniform thing that they do. And Paul, in light of the previous verse, verse 15, which says if you have a different way of thinking, God will show you, God will reveal it to you if you get wayward in your thinking, if you revert to an old mindset, you start walking like you used to walk and relying on that, he's gonna remind you of how you should walk. Now he's saying, literally, however... Yeah, God will do that. He will course correct you. However, don't let God have to show you. That's the idea here. Let us hold true to what we have attained. Stay in line. He says, I've led you to faith. I've given you an example. You've arrived in the sense that you're saved, okay? Now you be on earth who God says you are in heaven. All right? You Live out now what you will forever be in eternity. You function in accordance with your heavenly identity. You remember who you are. 
You dance with the one who brought you, is what he's saying. And then in verse, uh, number five in your notes, you need to follow the right heroes. Follow the right heroes. Verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. He says, be like me. Watch me. Imitate me. You know, some might say, well, that's a little puffed up, Paul. I mean, we think a lot of ourselves, don't we, Paul? Well, look, Paul knows he's not perfect. He's already said as much. He's made that clear. He's not saying, follow me because I'm perfect. He's saying, I'm not perfect. Jesus is, so I'm following him. So if you get lost, look my way and follow my example because I'm just following his example. That's a humble thing to say. He says, you don't follow me because I'm perfect. You follow me because I'm following Christ. I've learned I can't do this on my own. I got to match him. I got to follow him. So I'm sticking as close as I can to him. I'm, I'm staying close for dear life. You watch me if you don't know how to go, how to be, how to live. You do as I do because I'm doing what he does. At my last church, we had a trip planned to go to Israel. We planned it before COVID, so we didn't make it before I left. I'd been years ago. I wanted to take another group. We had a big group that wanted to go. Our plan was, having, having traversed the crowded streets of old, the old city in Jerusalem, my plan was we had this guy. We called him Big Mike. Big Mike was like Goliath. Dude was, he was like two and a half Scots, which I know some of you are like, well, that's not saying much. Okay, I get it. I get it. But here was my plan. We were going to put Big Mike in the middle of the pack as we walked through the crowded city because Mike was tall enough he could see who was leading the pack and the people in the back definitely see Mike and so nobody would fall away we got to be like Mike I want to be I want to be like Mike right you got to be like Mike Mike needs to be like Paul and Paul is like Jesus and so you follow the one who is following Christ and he says, here's what you're not to be like. You follow the right heroes, but now here's what you don't be like. In verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says there's a lot of bad dudes out there, a lot of bad guys, a lot of enemies of the cross, and they will distort things. You know, in Spain, there's a church called the Sanctuary of Mercy. It's in Zaragoza, Spain. And they've had at this church a fresco of Jesus Christ. And it, it's, this, uh, it's been up there for over a century. I think we have a picture of it. And it's, it's very ancient. It's very old. And moisture had deteriorated this painting over time. And so an elderly parishioner took it upon herself to do a little touch-up work on this painting. And so she started uh, to paint it, to fill it back in and try to restore it to its former glory. But despite her good intentions, her work was a little haphazard. And instead of the masterful brush strokes, it became a monstrosity. And I don't know if we have a picture or not, but the, the once dignified portrait of Jesus. It's been described as a very hairy monkey in an ill-fitting tunic. She basically turned our Lord into Curious George, all right? 
And no doubt people wept when they saw it. Well, listen, Paul is weeping right here because the gospel has been corrupted. Uh, I've told you that there were people uh, that Paul dealt with from time to time called the Judaizers that tried to add the law to the gospel. They say, oh, good, you follow Jesus, but you got to be circumcised. you got to follow the rituals. you got to do all this. you got to observe this. Well, there's another group that is on the scene when he's writing to the Philippians, and they're called the Antinomians, and they're the opposite of the Judaizers. No law. That's what antinomian means. Anti against nomos law. No law. And so they said, you don't need to worry about obedience. You don't need to worry about, about morality. You know, your body is just flesh. It's corrupt anyway. It's going to go in the grave. Just do whatever you want. God saved you. And so your spirit is all that matters. So live however you want. Sleep with whoever you want. Eat whatever you want. Consume whatever you want. Drink whatever you want. Smoke whatever you want. I mean, you, you just Katie bar the door, all right? It doesn't matter. We need to be wary of such people. Paul says, avoid them. And this happens in our day too. You got people that embrace libertinism in the church. And they celebrate evil. And they hate the idea of original sin. They hate the idea that we need a savior and they denigrate the notion of the atonement, what Christ did on the cross to pay the price for our sin. They say, you don't need a price paid for your sin. You're fine just as you are. Paul says, avoid such people like the plague. If you ever come across any Christian that doesn't buy into the atonement of Jesus Christ, the work of, of, of Christ on the cross, have nothing to do with those people. They're deceivers. And so Paul addresses this. He says in verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. He says they're not even of us, folks. They don't have the same God. Their God is their flesh. Their God is their own desire. If it feels good, do it. Satisfy yourself. Indulge. He says, and they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. They're too proud to be inhibited by religious ideas. They celebrate unrighteousness. Does our world celebrate wickedness today? Absolutely. I heard somebody talking about a, a podcast uh, yesterday where someone was telling the, the host that uh, you know, they, they had three children and they're just, they need to focus on their career, so they've decided to have an abortion, and they went to have an abortion, and they took their youngest child with them to the clinic. And the host said, oh, that's a yay. What a horrible, horrible person to celebrate wickedness. But in our day, we, we do. We glory in it. We, we hold it up as something to be triumphant, right? How many gay pride days do we need? How many gay pride months do we need? I mean, it's gay this, lesbian that, trans this, non-binary that. Hey, that's something God wants to save you out of. He's not trying to affirm you. He wants to rescue you. He loves you. He, his best for you is that you repent and you turn to him and he saves your soul. And you reject the things that are destroying you spiritually. And yet we celebrate things. The fool flaunts his folly. Paul says, they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Their mind is set not on Christ, it's fixed on self. It's fixed on what brings them gratification. We are to be different from that, different from the world. Verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is not of this earth. Listen, when you are from one land, 
sometimes the appetites of another land repulse you. I've told you about my culinary adventures in you know, Indonesia and India and other places, and you go abroad and you eat some things that you, you don't come into contact with very often. And I'm kind of adventurous. I like to experience new things, but I do have a line. And when I was in Indonesia, you know, I told you I, all the different things that I ate. Well, there was this one thing called durian. Durian. Have you heard of durian? It's a fruit. They call it the king of fruits. It's considered a delicacy. They love it over there. It's large. It's got kind of a spiky exterior. And you, you have to really work to cut into that thing. But you open it up and then it hits you. It's got an odor, man. How is it described? Let's see. It's been described as excrement, turpentine, onions, garnished with gym socks is what it's called. Somebody called it vomit-flavored custard. I mean, I'm telling you, I, we, my friend and I went to a grocery store. I knew they had durian in the grocery store because I could smell it outside of the grocery store. They don't let you have this in hotel rooms or on airplanes in that part of the world. But, but it is very popular. And so my friend was like, you know, you're going to have to try this before you go home. And I go, okay. Uh, and then I remembered 1 Corinthians 10, 27, which says, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question. And so I looked at that fruit and I took a whiff and I thought of that verse. And I said, no. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I appreciate that y'all have taste buds as unto that. Uh, I just, I don't. I, I have taste buds as unto buffalo wings, you know, and, and the like. Listen, spiritually, our citizenship is from heaven. And we are spiritually born from above. We are not of this world. And we reject the appetites of this world. And I'm not talking about durian. I'm talking about uh, the morality of this world. It's to be detestable to us. We don't look at earth for our cues. We look at heaven. And we look at the one who is in heaven. And we look forward to the glorification that awaits us. And number six in your notes, you've got to keep the end in sight. You keep the end in sight. Uh, the one that Paul says in verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to be subject to all things to himself. We look to heaven. One day he will transform us. You have been declared righteous. When you came to faith in Christ, he declared you righteous. That's your justification. That's the first tense of salvation. And right now, he is about the task of molding you, shaping you, chipping away at you so that you look more like Jesus. That's the second tense of your salvation. That's sanctification. And one day when you depart this mortal plane, you will eventually stand before a holy God and he will utterly transform you. And that is the third tense of your salvation, your glorification. And you will be devoid of all temptation, all sin, all weakness. It will be gone. And you will be like Christ fully. Romans 8, 23, not only the creation, but we, ourselves, we, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. How many of you can't wait for your body to be redeemed? Amen. Amen. Paul wants this church to know this. How come? Because he loves them. He loves them. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love... And long for my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, 
my beloved. He says, you whom I love, and then he calls them my beloved. Listen, he wants the Philippian church to know this. I want you to know this. You know why? Because I love you. I love you. The pastors at this church, the elders at this church, we love you. And we want you to run the race. We want you to stand firm. We want you to strain ahead so that you may win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's bow. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to remain seated as we're going to deal with some business here very briefly. But I want to pray right now. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this group. We thank you for the privilege that we have to be called the children of the King. And Lord, you want us to live according to that identity. And so I pray that our ambition would be to please you, that we would, we would shun everything that would take us the opposite direction, God. All of the accolades and the trophies and the temporary treasures of this world, they are as kindling. And so we look to that which is eternal, God. And may we run the race in such a manner as we may win. And we give you glory because you're the giver of that prize. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.